Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We're recording, man. We're cool. recording already. Okay, Ray, Ray Kelly from Australia, man. Welcome. Thanks a bunch. Heard some good stuff about you. Um, what time is it over there? It's morning, right? It is. It's, uh, it's around about uh, 7 a.m. here. So it's and, not too bad. I've been up for a bit. <laughs> and you're coming in a little faint. I don't know if we can, we can get more volume from you somehow. Let's see. How's that? That's, that's a little better, perhaps. So, so where are you at? Where exactly are you at in Australia? Uh, I'm about one hour north of Sydney. It's called the Central Coast. It's a beautiful area of lots of lakes and beaches. Hey, where's is that? Where's Surfers Paradise? Is there is there someplace close to that? No, that, that that's up in uh, Queensland, in Brisbane. So it's still about another sort of seventy hours away from there. But uh, it's yeah, look, between here and there, there's lots of great beaches. Oh, okay, so I've got an uncle that lives in lives in Australia that I haven't seen since I was you know fifteen years of age. So anyway, he's kind of he's kind of a reclusive guy. But one day, one day I had to get over. There. I used to live in New Zealand for. Uh, a while I played rugby over there when I was younger, and but I've never made it to Australia, so hopefully I'll get there in the, in the coming years because I've heard some great stuff about it, and, you know, so on and so forth. Ray, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, uh, I, I'm an exercise physiologist by trade, but I sort of started a little bit later, I guess, with my degree. I sort of came through the sports area first. Uh, I worked with the Institute of Sport programs over here in rowing and track and field and, and a range of other sports in talent ID and, and then on to the Olympics with uh, the Atlanta Olympics and preparing athletes for Sydney Olympics as well. Uh, sort of uh, after that, I sort of got more into the medicine side of things and the weight loss side of things. And um, yeah, I, I guess I've, I've had a pretty, pretty nice career uh, going through. I've written a couple of books and uh, I trained two winners on The Biggest Loser over here. Uh, two from two, uh, and I've trained yeah many many world champion fighters, about eleven world champion fighters, many many uh, national champions. So I, I like the I like the fighting arts. It's something I started when I was four years old, and uh, yeah, it's a big part of my life still. And and you know we we um yeah I, I just enjoy working with the fighters. But these days I, I run clinics where we're looking to reverse diabetes as well as doing research in the area. Yeah, that's really interesting. You kind of got a diverse subset of groups with the biggest loser, loser contestants versus the fighters. That's kind of, you know, the performance versus the, the health and weight loss goal. Did, uh, well, what was your kind of protocol for the biggest loser individuals? Yeah, it's a good question because I was a bit torn uh, about getting involved. I'd seen the show in the US and I, I liked the transformations. I just didn't like what they were doing with the contestants physically. Mm -hmm. and, and but, but I thought, well, I've got an opportunity here to show what can actually be done. So I took that challenge and pretty much I, I planned the, uh, the, the time I had with them, with the contestants I had, uh, basically periodized it like I would for an athlete. So we were sort of doing, you know, 
uh, so, some sessions that were high intensity, low intensity. We had some time off. And one thing, we had like seven weeks when they left the house before they had their final weigh-in and they had to live in the real world. Well, we treated that like a training camp and we knew that as the weeks went on, uh, people would fall off and they'd be dragged to you know, functions with their families because they hadn't seen them for a while and they'd be dragged with the media. Well, we, we, we went underground. We went training camps, took them out bush, like seriously trained in the bush and, uh, and just ripped it on home real strong. That's awesome. And like, did you get feedback from any of them afterwards saying like, Hey, I'm still going strong and this has been like a sustainable way of life for me. Yeah. Look, you see one of the guys, he's in the media a bit over here, still here and there. And, uh, that's, well, that's 2006. He was on the show and he's, uh, he's still, he works as a personal trainer and, and he's he's going strong, but you know, it's an interesting, uh, format with the show because, Everyone watching thinks it's all about losing weight, but it's not. It's about ratings. And, and so they also will select people who are going to be good for ratings. So the people who get through aren't necessarily the people who are going to be most motivated to keep that weight off afterwards. Yeah, you need someone who's going to sneak some snicker bars in there too to make it exciting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a lot of drama, right? A, little, a bunch of dramas. You, you said you work with the Australian, different Australian Olympic teams, uh, rowing teams. Did you know a guy named Sam Locke? Did you ever run into that fella on the rowing oh, team? Yeah, yeah he, he came through a little bit um, after my time, Sam Locke. He was coming through the GPS school system earlier. And yeah, absolutely, yeah, great rower, yeah. But I, I didn't get to deal with him. I'd left by that time. I got you. Okay, yeah, because Sam was chasing the – because I, I, do, I do rowing myself, and I've been – focusing on like 500 meters in my distance and you know i was able to set you know world record as the over 50 guy and over 40 guy and over 50 uh but but sam was doing the same thing so now he's in the u.s and he bulked up and became a power lifter so it's kind of kind of interesting to see so i mean I've, i guess you've got some interesting stuff uh, i mean maybe with some of the aboriginal populations that you've been working with is that is that something that you've been uh that, that, that's a passion of mine well, yeah, I mean, I've got Aboriginal heritage myself and uh, my grandfather's Aboriginal and we're very connected to um, the community up home. And it, it just, the Aboriginal population in Australia, like, like a lot of colonised areas uh, or nations, will uh, are more susceptible to chronic diseases. But, yeah, just, just through, um, you yeah, like lack of education over the years, being held back with that and access to healthcare and a range of other issues, but also being in remote districts, makes it a lot more difficult. Like, you know, Australia is quite a big place, as you would well know. So, look, I've been running these programs for many years and, and getting great results. And the government just wasn't listening. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to go to the most challenging uh, locations and I'm going to prove what can be done. Because we, like all the research shows that type 2 diabetes is reversible, but we don't see that in practice. Like, it, it, like you know, something like the direct trial will show say 85% of people who lose 15 kilos or more will reverse their diabetes. But in practice, if we had 1%, we would consider that fantastic 1%. And uh, so, yeah, we, we went out bush and uh, I set up a program around Burke and, and Brewarna and Walgett and their, um, their remote communities. Uh, wonderful, wonderful communities, beautiful places, nice red dirt. And, um, and, and yeah, we, we uh, had people coming off insulin. What you know, and it's some very interesting, and I have gotten very interested in sort of evolution and some of the early anthropology, and there's some very interesting stuff with the Aborig- you know Australian Aboriginal people and 
how they migrated in and, you know, 65 or whatever thousand years ago they came across and the life they, they may have led and, and what they were probably extremely, extremely healthy, fit, athletic, phenomenal people. And we see this across the board. We see it in the South Pacific Islands. We see this Native American populations. We see this in, you know, the First Nations Canadian people. They just get decimated. I mean, they, they, they adopt Western mostly diet and other lifestyles, and maybe they pick up smoking and drinking. And I mean, it just literally decimates them. And I, I, I mean, what is the current, what are the current statistics like in the, in the you know, Aboriginal populations in Australia? What are we looking, what is the scope of the, of the problem right now? Well, 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 the general sort of amount is it's, you're four times more likely to have type two diabetes if you are Aboriginal. But it, it's, it's more than that because we have a, a young population as well in the Aboriginal community. Uh, we have an earlier death rate, so usually uh, live 10 years less. So, so our cohort here is actually uh, quite young still. And we know that type two diabetes can be around 10 to 20 years before diagnosis. So, you know, across Australia, it's about 1.7 million type two diabetes with type two diabetes, 1.2 million uh, diagnosed, which you know, doesn't sound like a lot for the US population, but for an Australian population, it's big. Um, we, in Western Sydney, so in, in a metropolitan area, in our biggest city, uh, where I'm doing some research now, they did a study a couple of years ago at the emergency department, and they showed that 70% of attendees over the six weeks had either diabetes or pre-diabetes. So we, we've got a tsunami coming. It, it's really going to hit hard over here. Do we see that? I mean, I don't know how many of the folks, and, and I'm sure there's different aboriginal groups throughout the throughout australia and there's there's you know everything's got there's differences between between each one individually are we seeing that a big difference in one i mean are there any people that still live in their sort of natural setting eating their natural diet or or, or have, have the vast majority of them switched over to the western diet and if so do we see differences in their health outcomes oh look there's no different uh, no no doubt sorry that uh uh, those that are still more traditional, you know, don't have diabetes. Um, and unfortunately, in a lot of communities, see what happened with colonization is a lot of communities were moved off their land uh, so that it could be farmed and moved into what we call missions over here. Uh, and, uh, and, and they weren't allowed to leave. So th that's slowly changing. That's changed a lot now, actually, over the last sort of 30, 40 years. But it's still uh, the, the, the sort of, I guess, the repercussions are still there. That said, uh, around these communities, a lot of these remote communities, there's only one store, so they quite often don't get access to fresh food. They don't have, they do have some land given back to them by the government, but it's not the good land. It's not the land that has access to water around the rivers and things like that quite often. So there's no farming that can be done for food. I'll tell you how crazy it is. Up in Cape York, so the top of Australia, that tip on the uh, East Coast, uh, the Aboriginal people own 50% of that land and there's a lot of farming that goes on up there, but none of the farmers are allowed by law to sell the veg vegetables locally. They've got to ship it down south and then get it processed and ship it back up north. And there's also a lot of wild cattle that have to be culled in the, fire, in the, in the um, bush there and the rangers will shoot them and leave them to rot. But the local Aboriginal people on their own land, if they kill it, they get they can go to jail uh but and, and they're smashed with diabetes <laughs> so tell me 
that, that doesn't seem to make sense to me, but I mean, you know, we've got some, we've got some, some crazy stuff. So tell me, uh, so you've had some success with, with these populations. And I mean, if you're saying they've got quadruple the diabetes rate to the, you know, the average rate, and we just talked that we had uh, Rafi Sartoli on the show and we talked about, you know, maybe there's theories as to why some of these migratory populations, you know, particularly the people that populated, you know, went through Asia and came down through Indonesia and then, and then had to, swim or paddle or figure a way to get, get across, you know, some of their, some of the land bridges were intact, but they still had to do a lot of seafaring to get across mm -hmm. there. And there, maybe there was an advantage to being able to store body fat, you know, when they, when they're exposed to a higher carbohydrate, carbohydrate diet. And now in the modern environment that comes back to bite people because it's, you know, as mm -hmm. we know, there's Coca-Cola everywhere, there's flour and processed grains all over the place. So, what are you, so how, how are you, how are you helping these people? Let's just kind of get into the, I mean, cause I don't want to make any assumptions. I, I, I want to see what you're actually doing. Okay. So, so basically we'll, we'll take a step back to um, why type two diabetes occurs. And if you look at Roy Taylor's work from the UK, along with Mike Lean, they've, they've been able to show that it, it's related to fat around the liver. So um, everyone can, can store a certain amount of body fat around their body, uh, subcutaneous fat under the skin. And once it reaches its limit, then you'll start storing it around the, the liver. And then that, that cuts off that crosstalk between the pancreas and the liver. So, you know, the, the pancreas starts producing, sorry, the, um, the liver starts producing more sugar and the pancreas starts producing more insulin. And then the beta cells get worn out from all that insulin uh, production and so on. And, uh, and insulin resistance occurs and, and which flows on to type 2 diabetes. And what the guys over there in the UK have been able to show is that... Uh, losing weight so losing five percent weight um five percent weight loss could cause remission in about 50 percent of all people that do the program kind of thing now aboriginal populations that are known to have a lower bmi okay so when like you were saying back before colonization fit strong and lean absolutely ripped and lived long lives relatively disease free diabetes really wasn't a problem until sort of the mid uh 1900s um so as Aboriginal people put on weight, they usually stored around that midsection. So we can get people with type two diabetes at 60 kilos. So we know that the, 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 the process starts at a BMI of around 23, 24. So quite low. Um, but by the same token, Aboriginal people respond really well to lifestyle intervention, sort of lifestyle modification program. So just learning how to eat properly uh, to suit that sort of um, situation. So we can have, we, we've had a woman who'd been on insulin 10 years, lose three kilos and come off insulin in one week, in seven days. Um, so, and to, to sort of, I guess, take it back to, we hear a lot about the Mediterranean diet these days. And I, I, I often travel to the European Congress on Obesity and the International Congress on Obesity around the world. And that's where I try to learn and I go each year. And probably about 2014, I met up with one of the leading uh, dietitians in Europe, which her name's Professor Maria Hasipidou. Sorry about the pronunciation. Uh, she's from Greece. And she was presenting on the Mediterranean diet. And I said, is Mediterranean diet really that good? And she said, well, it is if you're from the Mediterranean area. And she said, where are you from? And, and I, she looked at my badge. She saw Australia. She said, well, you've got to find what's localized to your area. And that got me thinking. And I, I sort of look back on some of the work of Professor Karen O'Day over here, who showed diabetes could be reversed in Aborig Aboriginal populations within seven weeks back in 1982. 
and she did a lot of work since then. And what she showed was uh, Aboriginal people usually grew up on 65% animal product. So, you know, they would eat nose to tail pretty much as we say over here. Uh, and by the way, Sean, you've got to try a kangaroo tail, mate. They're great. Um, the, um, but but it, it's, it's a, um, a fantastic um, sort of format to base off. So, so we sort of started basing, not quite that high in protein, but certainly working towards those areas. And the, the response is within days. The improvements to blood sugars are within days, which, you know, you'd hear that story all the time, but Aboriginal people respond even better. What, what type of uh, foods are you including in some of those kind of higher animal-based protocols? And uh, like, is it, is it got a dairy component to it or is it more kind of closer to a ruminant type animal? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because we localize it to uh, the different regions. See, if I'm right in the outback, uh, right in remote Australia, there's still a lot of Aboriginal people who don't eat what they call that white fella food. So cows, uh, sheep, <laughs> stuff like that. So they'll eat wild goat, uh, emu, kangaroo. So I've got to base it around that. Uh, and, and the kangaroo tails are sensational. They're like an ox tail, so they're, they're, but they're longer and they've got a lot of uh, uh, connective tissue. So when you slow cook them, oh, they just make the, the most beautiful soups uh, and stews. So, so that, that's, a, that's a real popular one. Uh, but um, dairy, we usually sort of, it's not like an intentional cut of dairy, but it's certainly heavily reduced in that first sort of 10 weeks. Uh, what we do is we have a format where we, we sort of try to, I guess, try to work in with how people want to eat, but we show them what needs to be done initially to lose weight. And that's using our, our primary format, uh, and then, which, which is that lower carb format. And then we come through and, and you know, you, we find that people can add uh, more carbs in later if they'd like. Uh, a lot of people tend not to add too many, uh, but they can. And, and there's always, always, I see those arguments on Twitter around, oh yeah, someone that loses, uh, if it reverses their diabetes through uh, low carb, you know, as soon as they go back to eating carbs, it comes back. It's a myth. It's an absolute myth. I see this daily. Once people lose weight, they actually process carbohydrates better. Um, I've got one lady uh, who, you know, we can sort of share that video later on, who uh, had been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at 29 years of age. And I met her at 59. So she'd been a type 2 diabetic for 30 years and she lived in remote Australia, but she was university educated woman. It wasn't sort of some outback uh, person who hadn't had access to the city. And when I met her, she was crying. She was like, I'm just over this disease. I'm on four to five injections a day. I've been on insulin 20 years. My sugars are 17. Yeah, my fasting sugars are 17. It's just ruining my life. And, and I'm just planning for my own death. I'm sort of setting up my, my own funeral for my family so they don't have to worry about it. And she was looking to buy a motor scooter. Well, within two weeks, she was walking uh, four kilometers per day and, uh, and had reduced her insulin by 80%. By seven weeks... She'd, reduced, she'd eliminated her insulin altogether. Now, six weeks after that, she was also on a combination drug called Genumet, which is metformin as well. And, and she got that cut. So she just went back to base metformin after 13 weeks. Uh, so after 30 years of di since diagnosis, she was able to do that. Now, that was 18 months ago, and she's eating carbs every day now. Not, not crazily, but she, she's eating what would be called a relatively normal diet now. That that's you know that's really interesting. So you, we, another thing we talked about with Rafi on the last episode was this like concept where of like you know there's the different types of people where 
it kind of gets into um, if you're familiar with like the like a personal fat threshold where you'll get some folks who they have type 2 diabetes but they like with their clothes on they look relatively skinny but they've kind of like saturated the the fat uh stores that they do have uh so someone like her if i'm if i'm understanding right you know if she was relatively overweight and then lost a lot of that weight is that basically her essentially liberating that buffer that she would have had otherwise and then that's maybe why she can get away with a few more carbs because even if she does say overeat for a day or something like that there's there's a lot more of a buffer than there was when she was overweight yeah so she was about 87 kilos i think it was or 88 kilos when she started which over here that's pretty light <laughs> um and, and she only lost eight kilos to get rid of insulin altogether so it wasn't a great deal of weight she had to lose to, to, to get that success. But yeah, so what happens is losing that weight and being Aboriginal, she carried more weight around the, the uh, liver and the pancreas. So losing that weight uh, enabled the, uh, the liver and pancreas to work properly again. And so that's why she was able to do that. What is the climate like in Australia with this, I know we had a fellow by the name of Gary Fecky, who you may or may not be familiar with, and I know he was disciplined by the, you know, the, the governing body basically saying, hey, you can't tell your patients to cut back on sugar. That's, that's stepping on some dietitian's toes, and you're inappropriately reversing diabetes. Is that, is that sort of resistance still out there pretty significantly? Are you still considered uh, kind, of a, kind of a wild maniac that's out there, you know, on the fringes or, or is there becoming more acceptance or where, 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 where are you at in Australia at this point? Yeah, mate, I lived through that. It, um, I started looking at this around 2006. So it's been a while and back even up until probably 2012, I was considered rogue, dangerous, um, you know, like, yeah, be careful with, with this guy, you know, what he's doing is dangerous. And the crazy thing was, all the research shows this is how it should be done. This is, this is what's crazy. Like we get into research and it's all about trying to prove yourself wrong. But unfortunately with nutrition science, it tends to be, I've got to make sure that I show that I'm right. And so we, we get sort of pulled back a bit nowadays. And there's been a bit of a change around the dietitians association in Australia. And we're seeing some changes through diabetes Australia as well. And whilst there's some, some improvements need to be done, it's, um, it's certainly improved yeah, a great deal, I would say, but we, we are still far behind it. What, what happens is, you know, uh, dietitians are, uh, you know, want to push themselves as the experts, which, you know, they are really part of the solution here. They really are. But unfortunately, with their training, they're taught that these are the guidelines and you must stick to them. Um, and unfortunately, we know guidelines are guidelines. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything should be, adapted through there and look at the science i mean aboriginal australians lived on a high protein diet and were and lived relatively disease free uh for you know over sixty thousand years that we know of they were ripped they were strong they were athletic uh, they lived an old age you know it, it's it's if they want to see what happens long term well we've got that there now if they want to argue well we don't know about you know, modern meats and things like that. Well, you, you can argue about that, but I see it all the time. And I guess what I, I decided a number of years ago was, you know, rather than arguing about methodologies of science and, and you know, sort of how it's, how it's planned and structured, I'll just keep getting results. 
I'll, I'll just keep just working away and keep getting results. And you just can't argue with that. Yeah, you know, you, you kind of mentioned something that's interesting because I think like when I think of guidelines, uh, regardless of what those guidelines are, I think, you know, that's something that would be more useful for a person who's trying to go at it themselves. As soon as you hire a professional, you'd think you'd be bringing it down to the individual level at that part, at that point. And then I guess maybe those folks would work within the parameters of said guidelines, but there should be some flexibility there when you start to talk to a person and realize like, well, what is and isn't working for them? What is kind of sustainable long-term for them? And to me, that would be kind of part of that relationship. Yeah, look, it is. And like the, the thing that frustrates me is this isn't a funding issue. You know, the government's fund programs, you know, like millions of dollars, like there's, there's lots of money out there, but it's just spent the wrong way. And there's no true evaluation to give you an idea. We, we had a, um, an assessment done across the country in 2016. So they looked at all the type two diabetics who were treated through primary care, so through medical centers by doctors. So gone through the professional system. And they found that less than 50% achieved a, a HbA1c, you know, fasting blood sugars, under seven. Less than 50%, we're talking about a reversible disease, a preventable and reversible disease. They've got access to all those medications, endocrinologists, exercise physiologists, dietitians. This is the best we can do is 50% of people get a blood sugar of uh, under seven. It's insane. It is crazy. We have failed on that. We need to change it. It's not a matter of, oh, well, can we make it better? We need wholesale changes. Uh, The problem is people go in, they get referred, uh, they get sent through to a diabetes educator and an endocrinologist and they give them all this information and they get these pieces of paper, the handouts and and they just get so overwhelmed and confused. So the only way to really treat this is to get everyone um, in, in a program at the location and have the, the, the specialists come to them as a group and educate them and, and do it in a staged process so they're comprehending it and keeping it really simple. And, and the message is simple. If you've got type 2 diabetes, lose weight. That's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to do. There's, if you don't eat veggies, that's cool, but lose weight. If you don't, if you don't eat meat, that's cool, but lose weight. If you love drinking alcohol, that's cool. Just lose weight. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Ray, with your background as an exercise physiologist, and obviously you work with athletes, I mean, I sure you, I'm sure you value the, compo- the uh, contribution of exercise towards health. And, and I certainly do, too. I mean, I've been a lifelong athlete, and so, Zach, we all acknowledge that there is a role for that. There has been some, you know, sort of recent thought that, you know, exercise doesn't matter, you can't outrun a bad diet, so on and so forth. What is your thought on the role of exercise in maybe just health in general, whether or not, whether or not weight loss, you know, as part of it or not? What, how, do you, how do you incorporate exercise or do you, with, with you, know, you know, maybe these aboriginal populations or the general population? I know you had a deal with a bunch of sports fans from one of the AFL teams, one of the Australian rules football Australian Football League? What is AFL? Anyway, Aussie Rules uh, football deal. So tell me about uh, exercise and, and its role in all this stuff. Exercise, where do we begin? I, I started sport myself at four with martial arts. So you know, I, um, it's, it's been a massive part of my life. But um, do we talk about the physiology? Do we talk about the mental health? Like it, it is um, 
it, it, it plays such an important role, you know. But, you know, as far as um, remaining disease-free, you know, we, we maintain muscle mass as we get older. It increases bone density. You know, it, it's, uh, it, it improves our ability to process some of those crappier foods we might enjoy here and there or a few beers and a bottle of wine here and there. You know, it, it's... It's such, it plays such a crucial role, but it keeps getting put down to calorie burn. And you know yourself, if you have a look at how many calories you'll burn in an exercise session, especially if you're fit, it's depressing. You know, like, but, but, but it's, it, it's got nothing to do with that. It's that consistently, uh, consistently using your body. And, and if you put it into the perspective of your car, imagine if you only drove your car as often as you exercised you know, as an inactive person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it wouldn't be running too well at all. And, and the difference is you can always buy a new car. Uh, but, you know, as far as exercise goes um, with any of the chronic diseases, you know, you get someone with high blood pressure, which you know, is, is killing a lot of people across the US and, um, and Australia. You get them walking, just walking 20 minutes a day. Uh, and within a couple of weeks, uh, a lot of people will need a reduction in medication <laughs> just from walking. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's inconceivable that, that walking would be you know, an improvement in extra, you know, like I see people like ask me if I want to play golf. I'm like, if golf is going to be my exercise, I'm, I, you know, I might as well be dead. I mean, I, I just, you know, I kind of laugh about that. I just kind of make the jokes to you because I, I, I've been, you know, competing hard my whole life and I trained hard selling in, in my fifties and it's just who I am. But, yeah, but it's true. I mean, for some people just getting outside and going for a 10 minute walk is a massive improvement from where they were. Now that's not the end destination. I think that most people should strive for and let's, and, and we, I, I don't think it, I don't think we can stress this enough. The importance of preserving, building, maintaining lean muscle mass throughout our lifetime is incredibly important, not only for function not only for you know i want to look better but it isn't it has it plays a vital role in both our health in prevention of disease and and ultimately longevity i mean do you do you concur with that statement oh yeah i i, I turned 50 in a few months and um yeah look i i see myself being you know exercising as much as i can in the lead up now i lead a pretty busy life and sometimes it's only 30 minutes i get to sneak in a day and you know but but it is crucial like i, I just the, the diseases the majority of the diseases we're seeing these days is through um inactivity and um and poor diet but they sort of go hand in hand and and you can eat a good diet and and, and not exercise and still end up um in all sorts of trouble so you know we need to maintain that muscle mass we need to maintain that metabolism and like I said before, it's about using your body how it was made to be used. You know, like um, it's, I guess what, what we always say is you, you, you don't stop being able to do things because you get older. You stop being able to do things because you stop doing things. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a lose it or, or use it or lose it scenario with muscles. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and recently saw, there, there was recently a study uh, that came out looking, and it's an epidemiology study or a survey study, which I always sort of don't get too excited about, but it was, pop, it was a longevity study looking at Australian men, and they have some of the highest longevity rates in the world. And then, of course, you know, me being who I am, I said, well, how much meat do the Australians eat? And they eat, you know, some of the most meat in the world. And again, there's a lot of, lot of things that go into longevity, but what is the... Uh, you know, I, and you can't help but notice, I mean, particularly where I am, there's a lot of uh, 
emphasis and pushback to farmers are being attacked in Australia by, you know, sort of vegan activists. What is the overall average Australian sort of take on this, this sort of thing? Because I, I don't know. I mean, I, I see it from the extreme ends of both sides. And I don't know where the people in the middle and what's the general population looking like as far as are we going to go, is, is Australia going to go vegan anytime soon? What's the story there? But I, I guess the, the, the greatest comparison I could give would be uh, sort of um, Hester with the NRA and taking the gun out of his hand, <laughs> his, his cold dead hand. Well, that'd be the same with meat in Australia, I think. Um, you know, uh, yeah, look, I, there's definitely, you know, movies like What the Health has um, has really spread some, you know, just misinformation and that, that scaremongering, um, you know, it really, it, it really does get to some people. There's no doubt about that. But I deal with a lot of people and the majority of people couldn't see themselves living without meat. You know, going back to the Aboriginal population, because I think that's, I think that's just such an interesting, we can learn a lot from there. You know, I've seen some, uh, you know, you can debate about what their historical diet is, or maybe, maybe we know, maybe, you know, uh, but I mean, they, they, they've got some, I guess they've got some footprints, you know, some, some fossilized ancient footprints of these guys running and they were calculating to, to, for the stride length, they were calculating how fast they were running. It was something like, you know, Usain Bolt or even faster, you know, is how fast these people were. And, and, you know, so I think that's just amazing. So what, what was the, what was the native Aboriginal diet? Like, you know, do we have an idea? I mean, like, you know, they got here 60,000 years ago, they ate up all the emus and whatever, the moas or whatever, whatever was running around there. What, what, what is it like? over there well it, it changes because like you know the, the, there's um not just one homogenous group of aboriginal people like it's like calling europe uh one country you know what i mean so there was a lot of different countries within australia uh I, i'm from the gomeroy nation or camilleroy nation and so where we were we were inland so there was you know lots of good rivers and farming land um and, and that's another misconception and and, and i really recommend uh, any of your listeners, uh, if they're interested, have a read of Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. And what he, he shows the myth of the hunter-gatherer uh, Aboriginal Australians. So it's always been pushed forward that Aboriginal people were hunter-gatherers and, and they were actually farmers uh, as well. And they would, um, you know, the first, uh, the diaries of the first explorers that went through there that, that made first contact saw lots of uh, like, you know, silos where grains were stored and, and paddocks of uh, yams and tubers, um, but also just farming of, of um, kangaroos in, in the way they would um, have them in, in the regions and, and, and herd them through, uh, as well as uh, with fishing. Where, where I go to Brewarrina, they've got the, the oldest man-made structure in the world. It's 40,000 years old and it's a fish trap. And it's amazing, it's this rock formation where they would herd the fish up, up river, and some would get through to spawn, and the others would get stuck in these rock areas, like like a I don't know what you call it in the US, like an icebox, an esky, and and so they could store it, and and, and they would have up to ten thousand people living around that one bit of river at any given time when there was big uh, groups coming together. But but even in general times, there was a thousand people. Now, if they were truly hunter gatherers, you could not have a thousand people living on one part of a river uh, and living off. Uh, yeah, little bits of animal here and there, you know, like they were um, very, very good at, uh, at sustaining the land. And, uh, and, and I guess 
what a lot of people sort of relate it to is they had like holiday places. So they might spend three months in one location and then another three months, depending on weather and, and what was available in another. But um, yeah, like, yeah, they ate a lot of kangaroos, possums, emus. Um, but you know, there, there's berries um, and, and like I said, tubers and, and some grains uh, at a place called Cuddy Springs, just near Walgett up in Northern New South Wales is the first ever sort of um, sign that bread was made. So they've got some grinding stones there for grains. Now for a word from our sponsors. What are you doing with that X3 bar? What's your experience been so far? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been great so far. I've been using it quite a bit at home. It's saved me a couple trips to the gym. I've been mostly doing deadlifts with it, and I've actually brought it on a couple trips with me too because it's pretty easy to throw in, uh, into a rolling duffel and kind of bring with you on the road. Yeah, I mean, I found particularly the deadlift, um, you know, I've been a pretty decent deadlifter and, you know, I pulled over 700 pounds and I know when I use this big orange band that uh, it's pretty tough. It, it actually, for a band workout, it definitely simulates the heavy lifting. I think you're right. It's uh, very nicely suited for travel, for sure. It's a good, uh, certainly accessory exercise for many people. And I think a lot of people can use it as their primary uh, training tool, depending upon what the goals are. But I think the key I found is you've got to use it as designed. And that includes uh, really pushing to failure. And when you get there, you really know it. it definitely gets your heart rate up, even though even things like biceps curls, I find my heart rate jacked up after doing that. So I think I've been pretty impressed with the product overall uh, in certain situations for sure. Awesome. And uh, Dr. Jakish has a uh, poster that comes with it that gives you a kind of a breakdown of kind of the moves and different lifts that he addresses with it too. Head over to x3bar.com for products, videos, and training programs. Now back to the show. Do you know, because I'm just trying to think about like the general like setup in Australia, do you think like some of that early farming practices was developed just because in Australia they tend to like move towards the perimeters since it's more or less a lot more dangerous kind of in the middle of the country. Yeah. Look, there's no doubt that uh, all life was around the water, around the rivers um, and around the oceans. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a lot of good waterways. And, and uh, one thing like this is what surprised me is a lot of Australians don't even know this. Like we've, been here for 230 years but uh, unfortunately a lot of people haven't sought knowledge from aboriginal people and at that brewarrina fish traps how how people would know to come down like say 100 miles away which i know zach is just a day's run for you <laughs> is, is that they would have holes in the ground and when the water came up through the ground 100 miles away they would know that uh, the fish were up that the water levels were up the fish were coming so they would walk a few days and um and go and see their family and friends and trade and so on um and so that they, they knew how to read the land so whilst they could be around sort of smaller waterways they would move to the bigger waterways uh as well but yeah look i, I think that if you can survive in a country like australia for you know sixty thousand, hundred thousand years whatever it might be you you have to know uh you know how, how, how to uh, sustain the the food there that's for sure that's really interesting. And um, we can come back to this too, if we want to keep going on this specific topic, but I do want to ask you a bit about kind of the athlete side of stuff. Cause when we were talking about the beginning, you mentioned you'd work with some fighters. Uh, does your kind of protocol nutritionally stay pretty similar with that group when you just 
change the focus towards performance versus weight loss? Yeah, well, yeah, it, it is an interesting thing because I, as a physiologist and, and, and you know, um, strength and conditioning coach, I, I initially got involved with the fighting arts as a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, but I would refer my, my fighters on to dietitians and they'd be more concerned about making sure they had enough calcium and all these sort of things, which don't get me wrong. You want to make sure they're healthy. But these guys uh, were spending sort of eight to 10 weeks in prep and, and they'd be coming back heavier. You know what I mean? Like they, they just weren't losing weight, uh, which is pretty essential. Some of these guys, they're, they're making you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars a fight. So, you know, they, they really need to make sure they, they make weight. So I started you know, reading the research myself. And yeah, so we go along a very, very similar lines because we need to reduce weight, but we want to maintain that muscle mass as well. So, and, and in actual fact, I'm probably stricter with those guys on, on a lower carb format. Um, and, and then what we do is um, when they come into heavier sparring, so usually with a professional fighter, we would have them for eight to 10 weeks. Um, usually when they come in, they're usually about 10 kilos heavier. And I'm sorry about the conversion. I about 22 pounds or something um, heavier than what they've got to fight at. So we will um, try to knock off a quick three or four kilos in the first two weeks uh, by, you know, just higher volume training, lower intensity and, um, and focusing on cu cutting, um, cutting that weight through, through nutrition as well. And then sort of they'll get onto their heavier sparring then, if we're sitting right, we can sort of increase the carbs prior to sparring and, and sort of uh, go through there. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's just fresh unprocessed food. Interesting. Do you do, so when they have, cause I know like with my own training, uh, I look at it kind of through a few different windows depending on what phase I'm in. So if I'm like in an off season or a post race, my lifestyle looks quite a bit different. My primary focus is recovery and then my nutrition changes quite a bit. Well, not quite a bit, but, it changes quite a bit from a macronutrient standpoint. Are you seeing a lot? Because like the fighters are interesting ones to me because, you know, they're the kind of the group of people who are probably working out multiple times a day because they're kind of working on their skills plus whatever strength work they're maybe doing and then their, their cardio side of things as well. And so I could imagine like they would have a pretty drastically different lifestyle throughout various points of their calendar year too. Oh, absolutely. So usually in a prep, most fighters would be, training two to three times a day, uh, you know, your strength and conditioning, your boxing specific. Um, and sometimes I'll do some core work or a bit of a, uh, so, some fighters just like to run every day. Um, just, it, it sort of relaxes them. And I guess they like calorie burn through that as well. Um, I'm more of a minimalist. I, I think that if you, if you can't really, if you don't have a, a pure goal for your exercise session, then you, you should be recovering because the, the benefits are going to be much greater through that, through being able to see punches better. Uh, when you're sparring, you don't want to get hit too much in sparring. You know, you, you can't really sort of work on your tactics if you're doing that. Um, so, yeah, and, and the food is the same. Yeah, once they come off, they usually sort of splurge out. Fighters all sort of go nuts and usually take a bit of a break. Sometimes, you know, go to a Pacific Island for, for a holiday or some sort of coastal area and kick back and have a few beers and, um, and, and, and sort of just splurge with the food a bit. But they usually sit sort of within that 10 kilos of that fight weight. The other professional ones do. Hey, Ray, for uh, both your fighters, your athletes, and the uh, people that uh, are going at you for health issues, say your 
you know, the, the Aboriginal population. What are your, what is your thought on protein? I mean, I mean, there's some people in the low carb community that sort of are fearful of protein. What has been your experience with protein macronutrient ratios? Are you, are you kind of uh, conservative on protein or you, do you go a little higher on protein? How do you approach that aspect? Well, well it's an interesting one because we're more predisposed to type two diabetes and don't get as much treatment. We're also like, I think it's something like 10 to 20 times more likely to have chronic kidney disease as well. So it, it's, um, it's something where you know, amounts of protein can make an impact. Um, I used to be really concerned about going too hard on the protein, but what, what the research has shown over time is it's only bad for people who, who are quite advanced with their kidney failure or your chronic kidney disease. Um, I usually, I find that sort of mainstream Australia, you know, sit at about 40% quite comfortably, you know, 40% protein. Um, some people go, boy, I'm really, I don't mind sort of, I, um, I think that each to their own, like we, we get some people who, you know, are more along the lines of the keto style where they, they sort of like to, um, reduce it quite a lot. Um, whereas, you know, others that struggle to do the 40%. So, you know, we've got to adjust it a bit there, but I, I probably find 40% is a pretty simple sort of one. Um, I personally, myself, I wouldn't go into that myself, just purely through taste and likes. So I like a good steak. So, I mean, 40% protein is, I mean, total in your diet is, is far more than, you know, the average American diet, which is roughly somewhere around 15%. So that's, that's, you know, quite high protein, by most people's standards. I mean, that's what I eat. I mean, I'm, I'm probably much around 40%, something like that, which I think is probably consistent with what humans evolved doing, but that's, that's obviously speculation. Um, I think the comment on the kidney, I mean, I think, and we've had a lot of protein researchers on it. We've had Stu Phillips on here. We've had Don Lehman and Jose Antonio. And, and I mean, I think the, the research overwhelmingly shows that protein does not seem to impair or harm kidneys in any way particularly for people with healthy kidneys and even in those with compromised kidneys the evidence is not particularly compelling that, that restricting protein has much of an effect at all it, you know there's you know there's very minimal benefit and probably much better things you can do restricting sugar and you know insulin spikes probably is going to have a much more beneficial effect on preventing kidney disease and, and even reversing it and, I, and I've and I've personally seen people improve their kidney function by eating a higher protein uh, meat-based diet, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's no, very true. It's very true. And this is what just drives me insane with uh, the groups from the dietetics, uh, dietetic areas. They're always saying, oh, but we don't know the long-term effect. Uh, well, what we do know is if people eat lower carbs, they certainly improve their diabetes. They certainly improve their uh, heart disease. So they've got a better quality of life. Um, I, I really can't see where that's going to be detrimental down the track. If, you know, if their blood sugars are better, their uh, kidney function's better, their heart's better, everything's better. But it's like we're just waiting for just one person, come on, just one person go bad so we can keep hanging on to this paradigm. But, you know, it's gone. It's, 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 the change is coming. We, we know that um, the research that we've been sort of pushed uh, has been pretty flawed. You know, it's, um, it's been a guess at best. And um, to tell you the truth, I think we'll look back on this period over the last 30 or 40 years and be quite embarrassed that uh, we fell for all that sort of stuff because it's, um, it doesn't make sense. It's not supported by research. And in actual fact, the research is there on the opposite end. 
Yeah, we've done some some nice deep dives into the the protein side of the stuff on on this episode, and been real fortunate to have some some great professors and doctors kind of talk to that side of the thing. And it is interesting when you hear kind of their perspective as to like even what the average person should be targeting, much less the athlete. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Look, it's. Uh, if we had everyone just eating fresh, unprocessed food, which should be the message, we shouldn't be talking about cut meat for the environment. I mean, seriously, that's the biggest load of crap around. You know, let, let's just say eat fresh, unprocessed food. If you want to eat more carbs and you can be healthy, knock yourself out. If you want to be vegetarian and, and you can do that, then knock yourself out. But the, the fact remains that it is easier to be um, healthier with um with meat in your diet with um you know animal products in your diet and um you know it, it's pretty simple it's, it's so quick to turn around yeah i mean that is uh, that is the interesting thing and you know the other thing i know you talked about losing weight uh as being very important and, and much of the data would support that you know if you lose weight many many health outcomes get better um i'm also seeing you know in in the, at least the people that sort of respond to me that some people that are already thin and have other issues that are not necessarily obesity related also seem to improve just by improving the diet quality. And it may be depression, it may be autoimmune disease, and, and they're not obese to start with, but they are still afflicted with various different diseases and, and they get better in absence of weight loss. So I think there's, I think there's more to the puzzle than just only lose weight, but I think losing weight for most people, if it's, if it's, you know, visceral body fat or central body fat, that that's always going to be a good one. I don't think there's any research out there that supports having a big belly, a big beer belly, a fatty liver is ever a good thing. I mean, you know, we can debate about cholesterol and some of these other things, but I think clearly uh, that one is, is a, is a very sort of well agreed upon target, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, and we've seen like people, we, we know that people can uh, turn their diabetes around or, or certainly improve it without, um, without weight loss. There's no doubt. I've, I've had one lady who uh, had, had you know, started the program and then had all sorts of issues happen and she actually came back and weighed in one kilo heavier um, at the end of the 10 weeks. But her HbA1c was down 1.5, which is fantastic. It was 10 and it was down to 8.5. But she'd learned in the early days just some... Uh, good lifestyle um, skills and so she was eating better and she was exercising more she just wasn't doing enough uh, to lose weight through there but it was enough to bring her blood sugars down and over here yeah once you're getting around that sort of hba1c of around 10 they're starting to sort of talk about insulin so you know injections each day so yeah look there's no doubt about it but just like in my experience it's just um you see the weight loss you see the uh, reversal of disease yeah tell us a little bit i know you i saw that you'd mentioned that you were involved in a uh, weight loss challenge i guess or something you had some fans can you tell us a little more detail about that it was like they lost like Six thousand pounds collectively, or something. I can't remember the details. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, sorry. I was, when you say about a weight loss challenge, I'm involved with a lot of time. We we do some pretty big programs. This program was great. The, the GWS Giants is an Australian rules football club, so they're, they're one of the top teams. They're usually in the top four of the league each year. It's it's a pretty massive uh, team over here, especially in Western Sydney. And um, 
they 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 contacted me and wanted to run a health program and uh, we we actually met for a coffee at McDonald's <laughs> and uh, and sort of uh, discussed our health challenge and and did it on a handshake deal there and long story short we put a hundred people through the program over the phone so no face to face contact um, and they lost a total of one thousand six hundred and twelve kilos over the twelve week periods. Um, so yeah, I, I can't remember what the conversion is for you guys, but it's a lot of weight. It's, it's an average of 16.1 kilos or an average of 15% body weight. That was an average over the phone. Uh, and this is, this is footy fans. So footy fans here are just like footy fans over there. They enjoy a beer. They enjoy a high. So, you know, it was a, it was a culture change totally. And, and, and the thing was, we found it, it just really, um, it inspired more and more people. It was great. Yeah, I mean that's that's impressive. That's uh, probably what is it, would it be almost forty pounds there each for that. That for all in the kind of sixteen kilos. That's like thirty six pounds. You know, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's that's pretty. And that's cool. average. Yeah, and and that was over how long of a period again, Ray? Twelve weeks. Twelve weeks. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting because I yeah we did a uh, carnivore thing which was twelve weeks and we got similar. I think we had fourteen kilos was was what we ended up seeing people lose, you know, and it was, it was, you know, we, we did a little, we, it was, a, I think it was about a hundred people and we tracked them. Same sort of scenario, waist got smaller, you know, everything felt better, so on and so forth. So these things are definitely, um, you know, they definitely work for, for many people, not maybe not everybody, but for many people. And, and I mean, the fact that we still, this is a thing and you kind of, you alluded to the fact that, you know, in 10, 15 years, we're going to look back at this, you know, low fat, sort of thing as as a you know a joke and we're, we just can't believe we did that but at the same time we see a lot of investment coming out there to to maintain that sort of status quo i mean there's a lot of money in there to to maintain this demonization of saturated fat and cholesterol and low fat and, and now this plant-based because now they can make these fake highly processed meat analogs that they're going to try to try to push people because they still want to demonize this. And so I am, I mean, not as optimistic. I'm, I'm a little worried because there's so much money behind that. And, and I don't know if, if, uh, if enough of us, if our voices will be heard collectively to make a difference or if not, I mean, there's some, there's some signs of hope. I think the stuff that Verta Health is doing, I think, the fact that they're contracting with the Veterans Administration, you know, they're seeing a little bit of, you know, the fact that the American Dietetics Association has now recognized a low-carbohydrate diet as a option for diabetics. Those are some good signs. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of commercial interest in advertising and paid-off celebrities, uh, you know, trying to get the inf information out there. And we have to realize that information flows in a very different way these days than it did even, even 10, 20 years ago. So it's kind of like, you know, who's controlling the message and what ultimately happens for the population. But I think the answers are there. It's just a matter of people wanting to get them. Yeah. No, look, I totally agree. And, and there is, and like when the Eat Lancet stuff started coming, I'm like, oh, you're kidding, aren't you? And people were starting to fall for it. Then the, the holes come through pretty quick. But, you know, I, I think this, this is why it's so important we run these programs like I'm doing with the big programs, like you were doing with your carnivore groups and showing, you know, like we've got to show real people getting results. They can argue the research all they like, but they can't argue with the results. And this is where I'm moving into my PhD now with that, with um, doing populations. And I guess one of the benefits, <laughs> I say this tongue in cheek, 
uh, in Australia is the Aboriginal people are relatively forgotten in some ways when it comes to health treatments sometimes. So, you know, we can get under the radar by showing in a population that's absolutely decimated by the disease and absolutely high risk, yet turning them around, you know, um, or, you know, quite, quite consistently and very quickly. So there it starts getting people to ask questions saying, well, if that woman was on insulin for 20 years and she's, she was able to get off insulin, then why can't I? Yeah. And you know, the, there's definitely the power in numbers when people see enough examples of that happening, they wonder, well, why not me? And then all it takes is them to try it, to find out. And if that kind of keeps spiraling that way. I think you, that's where you see the momentum. And I mean, I think that's kind of more or less the momentum behind the meat based or carnivore movement here in the United States has just been, you know, the thing I found the most interesting is when I was first more or less aware of it, it was uh, a real kind of small group of people that have been there for a while, but you know, there's too small to have their voices heard or maybe too worried about what people would think if they went public with it. And then once it got to be kind of a little bit more, more people behind it, then you start to see like, Oh, so this isn't something where it's only one or two years that people have been doing this. We've got some folks that have been doing it for 20 years or even more than that in some cases, I think. So uh, it's really interesting to kind of see see how that all plays out and, and what kind of, I guess, size or percentage of the population you need to reach before you have any meaningful noise in the, in the environment, I guess. Yeah, no, definitely. And this is where, you know, I, I see the importance in getting to medical conferences and presenting and things. I'm off to Melbourne tomorrow uh, to a men's health conference, an Aboriginal men's health conference. So we just, you know, get that word spread and, and like you said, yeah, the marketing can really hit. They've got a lot of money, but a lot of these communities, you know, they're, they're really hit hard. And so they're looking for answers that they're, they're giving, you're given no answers. We're just getting taught how to live with diabetes. We're getting taught that it's a progressive disease, but we know it's a progressive disease if we follow the current model of treatment. So the, the more people can see what is possible and the research behind it, you know, the, the greater it'll be. And, and, and I'll tell you now, like doctors, I find quite uh, open. So if, if I show them the results and the research, they're, they're, most doctors are open. It's other health professionals that are usually in the way more so than anything based on what they learn at university. And, um, and, and that's got to change. Yeah? What we're te teaching health professionals at university has to become up to date. It really does. Yeah, I mean, doctors, I mean, nutrition, like I said, you know, and I speak fully as a physician who went through the system and practiced for, for a long period of time they're not the best source of nutrition or exercise or, or even, you know, good health advice. Quite honestly, we're, we're in a, I mean, honestly, and it's, it's sad to see this, but we've, we've kind of devolved into this. I like to call it now the disease management industry. You know, we used to call it the art of medicine and then it became the healthcare system and then it became the healthcare industry. And now it's just a disease management industry. And so I think we have to look outside of that paradigm uh, for many people. And I think, you know, more people are starting to realize that, that, you know, if you, if you go to the doctor and, you know, all you get is a, you know, a, a, a new prescription for a different medication, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're not being best served by that. And it's not that the, it's not that physicians don't work hard and, and have the right interest in, in most people's you know hearts in the right place. And, and not that they don't help many, many people, particularly when it comes to acute type of issues, but we really let the ball down on chronic disease management and or chronic disease prevention 
is probably the more uh, more important thing that we need to do. And, and we've been giving it lip service forever. I mean, it's, you know, we see the, you know, I mean, there's some, there's some literature out there and there's, it, there's, it's very poorly funded and it's not incentivized. And, you know, like I said, I can, I mean, if I spent half an hour with a patient talking to them about lifestyle and diet, I mean, the reimbursement on that is negligible compared to if I just sign them up for surgery and take them to the R and scope their shoulder. I mean, it's, it's just the, the whole priorities are really backwards as to where they should be. And I mean, I think it's going to be, it's going to be up to people like yourself and others that are just going to get out there and say, look, I feel passionate about this. This seems to work. I'm getting the result. That's the thing. The results, people will say that results don't count because it's not, it's not, it's not science, but I'm like, I mean, it's probably the most powerful thing there is. I mean, you know, there's studies there are so many problems with studies uh, and not that they don't, they don't need to be done, but I mean, goodness, we have people that don't want to want to see like they can, they can, it's like looking at the sky and saying, Hey, it's blue. And there's a study telling you it's red. <laughs> Wait a minute. What do we believe here? That's right. That's right. Oh, no, absolutely. It's, um, I, I see when I started getting involved in the research world, I just, it blew my mind. I, like these were the people I was reading about initially were people who I thought were, supremely intelligent individuals but um here i am i'm a guy who i didn't even finish high school you know i mean i'm on on my third degree now but i didn't even finish high school so i'm thinking here's a guy who was raised by an illiterate bull rider who grew up eating dirt pretty much (laughs) and has you know we're just you know this makes so much sense to me but these academics have gone through all the ivy league schools and great universities and 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 all this education and they they still can't get it right and it's, it's honestly it really isn't rocket science it's not yeah, I mean, nutrition is incredibly complicated, but then at the same time, I think it's very simple. I think it's just eat the, like you said, eat eat fresh, whole food, and that's going to solve 95% of the problems. And, you know, my, my bet is I think we probably eat more meat than, than we do now, and I think that's that's something that, that, that we should consider. But, I mean, when we, when we, when we're, you know, when we're doing the wrong thing, then everything becomes complicated because you're trying to figure out, well, how do I fix this problem that we created and, and trying to fix it with solutions that, that only work partially. And it's, it's just, it's kind of like you watching people beating their head against the wall and, or hitting them, their self in the head with a hammer complaining about a headache. It's like, look, right. stop hitting yourself in the head with a hammer and maybe that, maybe that'll headache. Don't take the aspirin. You don't need the aspirin for that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It, it really is bewildering. It really is. Well, Ray, let's tell us a little bit about what's coming up in your world. What what kind of things are uh, you've got going on? What kind of exciting stuff that people might be interested in? What kind of projects are you excited about? Yeah, well, I mean, the research side of things, I'm pretty excited. Sort of, um, sort of getting involved with a new team, and um, we, we will have we'll have some good stuff coming out over the next few years uh, in regards to the the work I've been doing. So we can sort of keep those in academia happy but uh we'll we'll certainly be keeping on pumping out those results i've also um going to be doing a bit of a um weight loss challenge kind of thing on on the biggest uh, media network in australia which is um, macquarie media on 2gb so on with john stanley of a night we're gonna uh he's been following me for a while and getting me on to have a chat about chronic disease and just loves the work that we do and so he said, yeah, let's, let's get more listeners involved because I've done some interviews and we've had people just listen to what I say, follow the advice and, and drop medication. You know, it's, you know, it, it's just purely through 
changing their lifestyle a bit. So um, that's pretty exciting. Um, but, you know, we're, we're always sort of um, doing new things out here, uh, always traveling. Um, I think I'm in Ireland at the next conference, which will be nice. Uh, but yeah, other than that, just family life with five kids. That's probably the most exciting part to tell you the truth. And I uh, just found out overnight, my daughter's just made the States for uh, gymnastics. So she's, she's jujitsu. She's about to compete in jujitsu. She's a junior black belt in karate and, and really good in gymnastics. And she's 10 years old. Wow. <laughs> so, and she's a runner. She actually does the, the long distance runs at school and stuff like that. But um, yeah, like, I, I try not to coach them at the moment. They're all still pretty young. My eldest is 13. I just sort of like to try and get them involved mm -hmm. more so and a bit of fun. But they're now getting to the stage where they realize my sort of training and they're going, well, do, do you think you could help me out? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's, that's really interesting because I think, I don't know how specific people get in Australia, but here in the U.S. we kind of have a bit of a, maybe a debate going on where like you, it, where we're getting younger and younger in terms of when you're specifying for specific events, you see like middle school, high school kids doing one discipline, like all in year round versus kind of what would happen historically where, you know, maybe I would do cross country and then play basketball in the winter and, you know, spread it out, play soccer or something like that. And uh, I've always thought like, you know, the way to do it, is you know let the give the kids the opportunities to do a variety of different stuff and then let them get interested and when they're ready to pinpoint one that they really like enough to focus on it primarily then that's probably the time and then they'll want to have your help <laughs> yeah 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 and, and, and i think uh, one of the points you made on twitter over the last couple of days but i've heard you say in an interview before was the difference between running trails and running on tracks mm -hmm. uh, and, and that specific sort of smashing of the specific parts of the body uh, on the track compared to sharing the load around on a trail run. Uh, and, and that's exactly it. Um, you know, if you get someone specifying too early, then they're going to be more predisposed to certain overuse injuries. And we certainly don't want that. My daughter doing gymnastics is fantastic for her karate. Like seriously, she holds her legs sort of up around through here, you know, uh, but jujitsu, you know, you can imagine how handy it is for jujitsu. And and even last night, she was um, sparring with a, rolling with a guy who was probably double her size, but he's trying to get her in an arm bar, but she's that flexible. There was nothing she could do and she, could, she could, was able to get out of it pretty easily. So, you know, it, it's, it's making sure that we're not getting them to specialize too soon because that could be what pulls them apart in the end. And, and anyone that's been involved with sport for a long time knows that, you know, natural talent will get you so far, but it's the hard work you do around it that ends up getting you there. And we see loads of people with that natural talent early on who fall by the wayside through boredom or through injury. Um, you know, for every champion, you know, there's probably 100,000 who could have been that uh, just, you know, ha had those things happen along the way. So, yeah, look, oh, I just wanted to enjoy sport. If she, she doesn't become a professional athlete, I can live with that. Um, but... You know, uh, that's uh, all of my kids. Yeah, they're all athletic. They're all good at their different sports. But um, yeah, very, very important that you, you share that load around as far as conditioning. And to tell you the truth, I've started them on resistance training now. And even my four-year-old boy wants to jump in on the circuit. So we just do body weight with himself and he's stepping up on little boxes and, and doing uh, his style of push-ups and, and things like that. And they, they get in as a group of five kids and, and love it. 
Yeah, I think that's an important concept uh, that, that many people are still, there's this sort of belief that uh, younger kids doing resistance training is going to stunt their growth. They're going to injure the growth plates. And, you know, if you look at the forces that are generated, particularly the shear forces, it would, which would, could truly be growth plate disturbing. I mean, those, those things come from kids running and cutting and playing and jumping. And so if you're saying you don't want your kids lifting weights and don't let them run around in the backyard either, because it's just, it's just crazy. And so, you know, my kids, you know, I've got four kids and I, and, and by four, all of them were doing some sort of, you know, supervised strength training. A lot of it was body weight stuff. Some of it was just throwing a medicine ball back and forth, you know, just kind of getting these kids. And now as they're getting older, eight, nine years old, they're, they're picking up some more of the lifting, you know, kettlebell swings and various, various lifts that I have them do. I mean, I supervise it, but I mean, the data out there shows that kids that are exposed to that pre-adolescence, their athletic potential is much better. I mean, they just develop better. They become better athletes. And I agree with the sentiment of not specializing too early because I think most high level coaches just say they can make, they need an athlete. They need a well-rounded general athlete that they can, when they get to that level, then they can make them, you know, the superstar, you know, you don't have to try to do it when you're 12 years old. Yeah. And you find that kids that are good at a range of sports usually have some sort of skill that's underlying that general car passing and catching and running sort of style. So it could be like reading cues and, and, and being able to um, communicate well and all these sorts of things. And they might be good at accelerating, decelerating, change of direction. That, that could be there, but there's a, a quite a range of things that uh, most people won't see that they're just simply quite good at naturally. But yeah, I like what you were saying on the running and jumping in my whole career. Now, I, earlier in my career, I specialized in training teenage female athletes. So I ran a lot of programs in the private schools in Sydney and I would work with maybe 2,000 athletes a year. And the only time I ever, ever saw an issue with a growth plate was from a basketball game. Mm. Not warming up, jumping out. That's the only time. And now we were working with you know, girls from 13 years to 18 years. Um, and uh, you know, there was, we, we never, ever had an issue. And we pushed them. We pushed them. You know, like they, were, they were training hard. So yeah, it, it's absolutely true. But by the same token, be careful. Don't go, if you're a parent, that does a bit of training. Don't just go taking your kids down to the weight room and training them. Yeah, like get some good advice and supervision on technique is, is crucial. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you, you take a, a kid into a weight room and put them under the squat rack. Like that's one thing, but if you have them doing like functional movements, it's like, well, what do you think they were doing before we've, we had modern society? We, they didn't have the luxury to wait until they were 16 to start moving around and picking things up. So it would make sense that when you like the functional movement side of things, it's the earlier you can kind of get them going on that, the better. Yeah, absolutely. And it's only going to help their sports performance if that is what it is. But yeah, you know, by the same token as well, you know, like we, we, we do want to, them to be stronger and obviously, um, you know, um, be, be more explosive and, and that's all fantastic. But we find with the younger athletes, if you can just spend more time on skill, they're going to develop that much faster as well so i think that a lot of the times the skill development seems too boring uh but it's certainly one of the most powerful um areas that an athlete can develop in their career throughout their career i mean i've worked with some some great fighters and i'll all tell you that it's the basics that they do every day that gets them through their fights cool yeah so ray where could our listeners find you if they want to follow you on social media or do you have a website or anything that they can link over to 
yeah, yeah. My website's uh, raykellyfitness.com.au and everything over social media, media so uh, Twitter, Facebook and uh, Insta is at raykellyfitness. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely be sure to link those things into the show notes. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to chat about or anything, Sean, you got? Uh, no, I, I really enjoyed the conversation, Ray. I mean, I, I think uh, one of uh, one of the gals that follows me, uh, she goes by Shaza. She's from Australia. And she said, you really got to get this guy Ray on there. He got some great stuff. So we're glad. A shout out to her for, for mentioning you. And uh, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I, I think, you, you know, we kind of share the same beliefs for the most part. And I think that's great. It's good to see more people in the fight. And I think we need to do that. And so I appreciate your willingness to, to do what you're doing and, and you're making a big difference and, you know, being vocal about it and getting the word out. Cause I think we, we've all got to come together and, you know, as a community and, you know, take, take back our health. <laughs> That's right. Like we've got so much to lose here, you know, like it's, uh, it's crazy. And like I said, I often shake my head thinking about how we've got to this position, but we are and, and, but we can turn it around. But I, uh, one thing I would like to ask you about your runs is, after your, your recent run, I mean, what's the, the doms like afterwards? What's the soreness like? Yeah, you know, the worst, or I shouldn't say the worst, but like the downhill running tends to be the most brutal part of it for me anyway. You, know, you get me on a downhill running course, then the next day, like your entire quads are so sore after that. Um, and it's a little more immediate, I think, when I'm on trails like that. Whereas when I do something like I did this past weekend on a track, uh, I have a much bigger background in flat running than I do kind of mountain or trail running. So I think there is some just kind of historic base there that makes that a little less of a hurdle to get over from a recovery standpoint. But it's also just, you know, you're kind of hammering those same specific motions over and over. I mean, it's a classic potential for overuse when you hop on like a 400 plus meter track or something like that and just do loops all day long. So, uh, you know, usually what I find after that is, you know, the next day I'm just, I'm pretty achy, but it's in like real specific spots. Uh, a lot of times if it's like a hard surface, then it's more kind of in the calf Achilles type of area. And you just gotta be kind of mindful about letting that stuff kind of figure itself out before, uh, before you get back out there and start doing any type of significant training or you, you end up hurting something from getting back into it a little too soon. But usually, you know, after about the second or third day, I'm feeling like the soreness has kind of moved through and then it's kind of about getting a little bit of the motivation back, catching up on some sleep uh, and all that sort of stuff. And, and nutrition, you know, like when you think about the race itself, like, I'm, you know, a hundred mile race, I'm probably burning somewhere in the neighborhood of 12,000 calories that day. So I'm certainly not consuming that many that day. So like the next, sometimes I think like it takes maybe two or three days just to make up that debt. And then I start kind of getting my just general energies back to a normal level. And then you kind of feel like a little more mentally motivated. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Like I, 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 I run 10 K as usually like, that's what I'll get to. And usually my music gets boring then. And so, <laughs> but, but I've just had a friend, I'll give a shout out to my friend, Jess, uh, who um, completed an, I think it was an 80 kilometer, but her next one she wants to do, a uh, hundred and uh, she went over to Western Australia and did it. And when I mentioned I'd be speaking to you, she was, she was pretty impressed. <laughs> that was really good. Hey, and Sean, um, rugby. I played a lot of rugby growing up, uh, league and union. Uh, what position did you play? 
So I played, I switched between eight and, and, and then lock, basically. You know, I mean, that's a six, five guy. I was fast, could jump. And I mean, I, I obviously preferred eight. You know, I like running the balls, tackling and, you know, stiff arming the scrum half on the other one way around. And yeah, I you, got you, yeah you, I was thinking at your size, you're obviously in the forwards. I, I was actually, I played hooker uh, for um, a lot of my early career, but then I had a scrum collapse on me. I've got a long neck. So, they worked out that it probably wasn't the best. So I went to seven then, so I was on the other side. And um, I love that. As yeah, that's a great position. Yeah, the flanker's yeah. nice. Uh, yeah, I got to play – when I was in New Zealand, I got to play with a lot of the All Blacks were on the you know, opposing teams. And so it was uh, it was pretty high-level stuff. So I was, I, I was uh, fortunate to do that. But uh, it's a fun sport. I, I, I sometimes miss not being able to run down the street and stiff-arm somebody in the face. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a great pressure release, isn't it? But, but in New Zealand, it's another level too because they're extremely passionate about the sport. It's, it really is like a religion to them. So, um, yeah, you certainly, uh, being a big bloke as well, they would have sized you up going, oh, this American, this big American guy, we'll see what he's made of. They would have tested you. Yeah, oh, yeah that, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I think I hopefully held up reasonably well. But, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting time. But you're right about the religion. I remember like coming from the United States where you're playing in the backyard of some middle school with no attendance to, to playing in rugby park, you know, in the Waikato and, you know, some of these big stadiums. And you have little old ladies that are 75 telling you what you did wrong during the game. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really care about it. No, they're great. And New Zealand's just such a beautiful country. And the seafood's amazing. And, yeah, look, they're just really, uh, really great people. So, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you would have had a ball there. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I got to get back down there, both Australia and New Zealand. I maybe, maybe next year or something like that. Get a, get a, a, you know, I know Zach was there last year or something like that. He had a great time and have a uh, big uh, tour of New Zealand, Australia, enjoy some of the good food they got down there and meet some of the great people. Well, if you get down here, I'll cook you up a tail, a kangaroo tail. You'll yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm interested to try that out. Sounds good. All right, Ray. Well, thank you so much for being on. Zach, anything else? I think that's it. Yeah, thanks, Ray. It's been a, been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, guys. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.